Welcome to Episode 5 of How We Win. We are getting closer and closer to the 2020 election, and every week we'll share these stories from the field. All over the country, ordinary people are doing extraordinary things. We'll give you the tools that you need to jump in and make a difference right now. The best antidote for anxiety is action. On today's episode, we'll share our conversation with Congress member Karen Bass. Now in congressional leadership, she started her career as an activist and organizer. We talk about how she got her start, what moved her to run for office, and yes, we even talk about Trump's latest criminal acts and where she stands on impeachment. Then I'm going to share our first field report from the streets of downtown Los Angeles as I accompanied my daughter on the youth climate strike last Friday. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How We Win. You are failing us. But the young people are starting to understand your betrayal. The eyes of all future generations are upon you. And if you choose to fail us, I say we will never forgive you. That was Greta Thunberg's incredibly impassioned and beautiful speech to the UN General Assembly on climate change. Wow. She is amazing. And just outclassing everybody, I woke up this morning to a tweet from Donald Trump making fun of her. I saw that too. Which is, you know. Come on. I mean, look, there's no shortage of outrage for Donald Trump. Trump's tweets. And we managed to not talk about Trump a lot on this. Mm-hmm. And uh, this episode is going to be a little different. It's Trump heavy. It's going to be a very Trumpy episode <laughs> because uh, we have two main things to talk about. Mm-hmm. And uh, one is, of course, impeachment and the official impeachment inquiry and Trump's criminal acts. And we're going to talk about that. But we're not going to let it overshadow the incredible work that Greta Thunberg and these young activists have done around the climate. Yeah, it's it's pretty spectacular what they're doing. And one of the things that I love about it, particularly the – so Greta Thunberg and 14 other young people filed a lawsuit against five countries this week over climate change. And it's a broad and diverse group of young people. And I think that as exciting as it is to see Greta standing up to Trump and the UN and calling us out on our failures – as a society to to the world's children, she's standing on the shoulder of other young giants who don't get the same accolades, don't get the same attention. She's standing on the shoulders of the indigenous youth who were activated by the Dakota Pipeline Project and right. and the the black youth in Flint who were mobilizing to to save their own water supply and and what we see here in LA Latino youth activated for years to to get clean air in their communities. And so this is an opportunity to say wow, look at this young woman, but also look at all of the the young people who she was able to mobilize because of the work that they've been doing. That's a great point. Yeah. Not for nothing, there's a great meme of her giving laser evil eyes to Donald Trump as he walks in a room, um, which I just want to watch on a loop over and over again because it brings me joy in a very stressful week. (laughs) Every face in that room is a mood and hers is (laughs) the most relevant. That's right. But yeah, speaking of stressful weeks, happy impeachment week. Oh, is that what we're calling this? I'm, I am right now. 
So here's the thing, and it's obviously very serious, and we talk about it a little bit with Congresswoman Karen Bass later on. Yeah. And also we had this conversation with her a few days ago. A lot is happening, moving very fast this week. Yeah. Speaker Pelosi announced that the House has officially launched an impeachment inquiry. This is all happening. But we have a very specific job to do right. around this because impeachment proceedings going forward, that's not going to save us. And it's still incredibly unlikely that the Republicans are going to do anything. We're not going to have saviors in the Senate. Right. So what we can do and what we must do right now is create that public narrative Mm -hmm. around impeachment and give the people who are coming out in favor of it, give them support. Right. Retweet them. You know, make sure you're following them. Call those Um, offices. Call those offices. Exactly. Call all of your representatives Mm -hmm. and then have your friends and neighbors and everyone do the same thing because this tide is rolling, but they need our support. We have a very key role to play in this. And there are still some folks who might be on a tipping point that need to hear from the public because I think the public narrative so far has been um, the general public, the voters, aren't ready for impeachment. They haven't seen anything that they feel is worthy of going through the whole process of impeachment and Democrats are just going to make themselves more vulnerable with that. But public sentiment is changing with this Ukrainian news. That's right. And public sentiment has to change for this to move forward in in an effective, meaningful way. So be loud about your feelings around impeachment. It will absolutely make a difference. The other thing that we need to do around this is – We need to keep registering voters, especially in these key states. We know Trump will do anything to win. Right. There is nothing he will not do to stay in power. And this isn't hyperbole. This is actually really scary. You guys, he is using U.S. money to bribe other nations to help him win. In plain sight. In plain sight. It's in like I want to I want to laugh about it. It's really scary. So we have to win overwhelmingly. Mm-hmm. The House is going to do their job. Now we have to do our job mm-hmm. by reaching out and registering the voters we need in 2020. So that means the super states. That means the swing states. It means the Senate, the Senate, the Senate. Right. We absolutely need to be focusing on that and not let all of this um, impeachment and presidential stuff take away all, all the air out of the room. Yeah. And I think that the if the impeachment train continues down this track, even let's say, you know, worst case scenario, they don't impeach because uh, they don't have the votes to do it. There are vulnerable Republican senators who will have to answer for that in November if they're not willing to step up and say, oh, we have all of the evidence. We had all the evidence we needed, but we wouldn't get on board. Well, then you you have some questions to answer from from some angry voters. That's exactly right. So there's lots of reasons to be hopeful right now for Mm -hmm. our reasons for hope. One is, you know, I really hope he does get impeached and this moves forward. Even if the Senate doesn't do anything, this I believe personally Mm -hmm. that this is our moral responsibility um, Mm -hmm. to hold him accountable. So we'll support our reps. Um, your, Your calls to action for this week or call your reps, retweet their post, help build public support. Our other reason for hope is this great climate march and, yeah. and the work that these kids are doing. And 
Coming up after our interview, uh, we have our first field segment where I got to go with my daughter and talk to some yeah. of these kids. I hope you you know listen to it because it's so inspiring and um, it's really really cool. Yeah, we had a great time. So, calls to action: Don't forget about Virginia. Seven weeks, I think, until election day in Virginia. Yeah, still time. We can take the majority. And that's going to set up victories that will, will not only – like, first of all, Virginia is the second hardest state to vote in, right. by the way, because of voter suppression and gerrymandering and all that. So oh, we can, they got those good old southern voter suppression tactics. They, they do. <laughs> they do. Um, it's also going to be a big test for 2020. Right. There's so much to get distracted with right now and for good reason, uh, but we can do both, right? right? We can look at this impeachment with <laughs> bated breath mm-hmm. and, uh, and great interest, but we can stay focused on the work we need to do on the ground. And that's what we're going to do. Yeah, you can tweet about the impeachment and you can also go to swingleft.org slash Virginia and find some things that you can do to, to help the folks running for office there. That's right. All right, let's get going with the interview. Karen Bass is a five-term member of Congress from California, the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, and a leader in the resistance movement. Before that, she was an activist, organizer, and physician assistant. In 1990, she founded the Community Coalition of South L.A., known as COCO, and after the 2016 election, she created the Sea Change Leadership Pack, where I have the honor of serving as executive director. She went from organizer to elected when she was voted into the California Assembly, and she became speaker, the first African-American woman to lead a state legislature in U.S. history. Representative Karen Bass, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks for having me on, and thanks for doing this. Absolutely. So, of course, people know you as a member of Congress and part of congressional leadership, but you started your career as a community organizer. How did you first get started as an activist? Well, I actually never saw politics as a career because I've been active in community issues really since I was in middle school. And it was a part of the time period of what was happening. And so it never occurred to me to make a living doing this. (laughs) I actually had an entirely other life, which was working in the medical field. Uh, But what happened was when crack cocaine really hit, it was very clear to me and a number of other activists that if we didn't get on the front end of this, we were going to wind up, unfortunately, where we are today, dealing with mass incarceration. When we watched the laws change, and for me with a health background, the crack epidemic was a health issue that was criminalized. And it was also an economic issue. And so that led to me uh, leaving the medical field and starting Community Coalition. And that was the first time I actually got paid to do what I was doing for free. So over the years, I've worked on many different issues, domestic as well as international. So prior to the crack epidemic, I was actually focused on uh, the movement in the apartheid and to free Nelson Mandela. And um, when Nelson Mandela was free, apartheid ended, crack took over, that changed my life, and I started focusing on domestic issues. 
You said your activist career started in middle school. Yes, what, middle school. What could a middle schooler do? Well, you know, it's one reason why I'm so passionate about young people being involved mm-hmm. because I think – and there's the, the uh, girl who, you know, led all of the environmental protests in this week, and I think it's an example. But during, during middle school, uh, I was asked to be a part of school integration. That was around the time period where busing was being debated. It hadn't happened, mm-hmm. but it was being debated here. Right. But the first political campaign I worked on was Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign, I signed my mother up as a precinct captain. She didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) But I went around and worked a precinct, and I was in middle school at the time. You know, it was the war in Vietnam. It was the civil rights movement, the black power movement. All of that was happening at that time when I was growing up. And uh, many of us were just swept up in that time period. And and at that age, especially watching the civil rights movement, uh, because I watched it on TV. I was in Los Angeles. I had never been to the South. But I made a commitment at a very young age that I wanted to devote my life for fighting for social and economic justice. So being in office is kind of an evolution. It was never something I had planned. Uh, But what I believe is, is that being political means so much more than being in office. There's so many ways to be political, so many ways to be involved. And when you started organizing COCO, how did you organize that community? Was there a specific philosophy or? Yes, absolutely. Definitely a specific philosophy. But I will tell you, I had very little idea of what I was doing because (laughs) I was starting a nonprofit. And during those years in the late 80s, early 90s, we did not have social justice nonprofits that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so um, I just took a risk. I knew that there was a problem there. I was very concerned about gang violence and I was concerned that that the community was demanding law enforcement. The community was like, bring in the National Guard, bring in the Army. See, when people talk about the crime bill today, what they don't realize is that the demand from the, for the crime bill came from the community. Mm. The problem I felt the terror I felt was that was terrible. <laughs> well, you know, this is a social, a health, and an economic problem. It is not going to be solved by law enforcement. So I felt it was important to work on a grassroots level to change where the community was coming from. So the community wouldn't demand the police, but the community would demand drug treatment, would demand economic opportunities, would demand uh, opportunities for youth. So uh, we started a youth component to Community Coalition, and I really based it on how I was growing up because There were no models for youth activism at that time. But uh, we started recruiting kids in high school. And my belief was if it was a kid that could be potentially involved in gangs, if we could get them involved in politics, that would steer them away. If you think of the Panther Party, a number of the Panthers were were active gang members. So how do you get these young people involved? And uh, and if you train them to um, in social change, they'll fight for change in their schools. So the big issue uh, that we fought for during that time was Los Angeles had passed a school bond to repair schools, Mm -hmm. but the more affluent schools were doing things like repairing their swimming pools and their athletic fields. Our kids literally didn't have toilets. Mm -hmm. So we gave them disposable cameras because that was before cell phone cameras, (laughs) and we told them to take pictures of the conditions in their schools, Mm -hmm. and then we organized to get um, resources Shifted, and we were able to shift over a hundred million dollars to those schools. So the other day, I was at Coco, and uh, I ran into one of the uh, young women, and uh, we recruited her when she was fifteen. Mm-hmm. And I asked her how old she was, and um, 
She's 43. No. <laughs> and That's not possible. And still, still doing the work. Yes. A number of the young people uh, grew up there, went off, started their lives, and then came back. And mm. so a number of them are still there. Wow. And, so, and Coco is still going strong. And Coco is still going strong. And as a matter of fact, next year, Coco will celebrate its 30th anniversary. Mm. Wow. And, and so part of my uh, concern, too, was to start an organization, build it, train the leadership, and leave. And really mm. focus on uh, building the next generation of leaders. Because if you really truly believe in social change, then it's never about you. It's about building leaders and other people because the movement continues. And if we haven't learned anything from Donald Trump, uh, when we win, at one point in time, we thought we would win and that's it. Mm -hmm. But anything you win can be reversed. And that's the lesson from one of the lessons from the Trump era. You bring up a really good point about passing the baton and developing leadership. Yep. What What are just a couple of like bullet points of how you empower people to step up and become leaders? Well, I think you number one, you show that there is nothing special about it. In other words, people aren't. I do not believe people are born to be leaders. Mm. Anybody can be a leader, and most people have leadership potential. Mm. And it's really helping people see their own innate abilities, helping people get the confidence, and also setting up a path. Mm -hmm. So you know, you start a project, you start a campaign, and it's really good to know ahead of time whether that campaign is really viable. You don't want to tell people, well, we're going to start a campaign to end racism. How about say we're going to take a, a specific issue and you involve people in it, but, um, but you don't make it about yourself? Hmm. Well, I think that you that what you're talking about is a little bit reminiscent of what you've done with a lot of organizations, as, including Sea Change, which full disclosure, I manage, uh, but you are the founder of Sea Change and you use that to you know, inspire people to, I guess the, the big goal was to resist Trump. Right. But the actual let's get the work done goal was different. Right. It was about, uh, to me, I, I always, as an activist, you, you know, uh, activism ebbs and flows. Mm -hmm. And so you're always in search of a flow. <laughs> and Trump gave a huge flow. So you had all this energy out there, all of these, uh, all these people concerned. It's so important that you grab that energy and channel it. Otherwise, people will become very demoralized and negative. Mm -hmm. So as you know, because I might have started Sea Change, but you're the one that breathed life into it uh, and kept it going because I could have never done that. Um, we didn't really know what we were doing. I mean, we brought people together. We knew what needed to be done, which was voter education, voter registration, and we needed to do it right away. My, my beef with the Democrats is that sometimes, well, not sometimes, most of the time, we wait until 90 days before the election mm -hmm. to get people involved. But this guy was traumatizing us so badly right. that if we didn't get people involved very early and sustain it, mm -hmm. then, you know, we wouldn't have had the victory we did in 2018. Now, I think the marches were great, mm -hmm. but marches at the end of the day is just a tactic. You have to do something when the march is over. Right. And, and some people felt like since there's not these mass marches anymore that it, it's dissipated, but it really hasn't. Uh, 2018, I mean, we focus on flipping Congress, but and, and I asked somebody to do this. We really need to uh, develop a database of all of the elections that were won, because I think there were hundreds, if not thousands, of elections that were run around the country because people got activated uh, with his election. Absolutely. 
I remember when Sea Change, well, well, when Swing Left launched and we were looking for our first things to do, Sea Change was already there and they had canvases going on. So it was great because we could say, go, go do this. And, um, you know, so many people, like you said, just like hanging in the wind, activated, wanting to do something. So it was so great that you organized that early. And, you know, one of the basic principles of organizing, too, is that people know the answers to problems. What, what an organizer does is bring people together. And that's what we did with Sea Change because mm-hmm. we didn't really know. I mean, we knew we wanted to go out and do voter education and, and registration, but people came together and we all figured it out. Mm-hmm. We all figured it out together. I was worried that some of the new activists um, who got involved after Trump uh, I wanted to make sure that, that they used their time constructively because you remember in the beginning, people wanted to go find Trump voters right. and they wanted to try to convert <laughs> Trump voters. Right. Yeah. And it was our job because we had had the experience at it to share with them that actually in California, you don't need to do that. The Republican Party has third party status. You need to turn out Democrats and turn out declined states, you right. know, and you can win. But it was and, and you have to be careful there because when people get started, we didn't want to dominate. We weren't trying to do any of that. Uh, We were just trying to make sure that people were effective and bringing folks together and coordinating. And uh, and I think that, you know, people saw we weren't there trying to be the big 800-pound gorilla. We were just trying to be helpful and supportive. Mm-hmm. And and I do think that that's a, a basic value in organizing that I've always believed in. You want other people to organize. You want other organizations. You want other leaders. And you want to do anything you can to help other leaders, you know, get activated, grow, develop. And, uh, and that's the way we bring about change and sustain it. Awesome. Was it hard to go from being a full-time community organizer and the the person that leading the helping the community demand change to the person on the receiving end of those demands <laughs> to being an elected? <laughs> um, no, it. I mean, but you know, I think I had to do it at a certain time of life. I don't, you know, if I had done this 30 years ago, I would have never been able to put up with what I can put up with now. I think you kind of reach a point in life where, you know, you can manage. But I felt that my work was done at Community Coalition. You know, I had built the organization, uh, developed the leadership, and I was not needed anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but where I was needed was in the legislature. But the thing that I found so interesting, and this has been an ongoing frustration of mine, is that we as activists have learned how to win elections and mm-hmm. learn how to get people involved but we don't know what to do with them when they get in, when they get elected and so i was just stunned that nobody made demands of me nobody was trying to say this is what we need you to do and um, and they did not take advantage of me being in office. And it's still an issue. I think as 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 the progressive movement sometimes we don't know what to do we, we fight for these things, and then we win, and then we go on to the next issue. And it's like, wait a minute. You know, you put people in office, you need to continue to be involved. That's also part of what I hope down the line will be um, part of tr- Trump's legacy, which is a cultural change mm-hmm. where we understand finally that we do not have the privilege or the luxury to not be involved. It's not just about one election. It's what happens the day after the election. You have to work with the person in office. Otherwise, because if you don't, you have all of the corporations and everybody else is working with them. Well, to that point, I mean, uh, what advice would you have for 
activated citizens or just your average citizen for a way that they can work with their elected representatives or hold them accountable to issues that are important to them or or help them with social mobilization where they need need that? Well, I, one of the first things that needs to happen is people need to understand what elected office is. In other words, I'm going to have a town hall meeting in a couple hours, and I know that I will spend a great deal of time in that town hall meeting telling people this is what I do in Congress. It's the city council that handles this. It's the state that handles that. And people often say, well, that's because we don't teach civics in high school. Who remembers what you learned in high school? It's not about (laughs) a class you took in high school. It's about our American culture, which is very apolitical. And so the first thing people need to do is educate themselves about what the person in office is doing Mm -hmm. or, I mean, what a, you know, what a a particular level of government does Mm -hmm. and then find out what that person is doing, what legislation they're working on. Let them know that you're there, you know, to be helpful. And then you also might have suggestions. Uh, I get lots of legislative ideas from town hall meetings. And people also tell me about legislation that's happening in Congress, Mm -hmm. you know, that that I don't know about because, you know, Congress is really big. I mean, there's 535 of us, if you count the senators, tens of thousands of bills. So people will come to a town hall meeting and say, we want you to sign this. And and they're kind of amazed that I don't know about it. And so part of it is, you tell me you want me to do it. And if it's something that I feel I can do, I'm happy to support it. So, you know, working with working and understanding that we are in this together. It's not just that every two years you vote for me, but I hope you're there. I mean, I'm involved in uh, developing a real comprehensive legislation around women in the criminal justice system Mm. because right now when people talk about criminal justice reform, they're really only talking about men. They're not talking about women and they're not talking about children. So I have pretty comprehensive legislation on women. Now I want to roll out a whole campaign around the country raising people's understanding of women in the in the justice system because they're not thinking about it. And and the other thing that activists always do is that you, as you look for an ebb and a flow, you also look for openings. And so for years I've worked on foster care uh, because politically I couldn't really do open criminal justice reform. The foster care system is a feeder system to criminal justice. If you do a survey of people in prison, huge percentage of them started in foster care. But now I can openly work on criminal justice. And so anytime you see an opening a political opening you want to run through the door <laughs> with with legislative initiatives. And is it the public narrative that enabled you to be able to work more openly on criminal justice reform? Is it um, Did it come from some politicians finally taking up that issue more? Well, um, what changed? Change comes from all of that. So, and it's interesting because we have this moment where there's tactical unity with the left and the right. So I'm going to work with the Tea Party, the Heritage Foundation, Trump administration, whoever, that are interested in criminal justice reform for an entirely different reason. They're worried about the money. I don't care. I mean, if we can be on the same page and get some legislation passed like we did with First Step, 40,000 people get released from federal prison, Mm. then, you know, fine, we'll do that. So part of it is because Republicans have realized that this is a whole lot of money that we're spending. And remember, they don't like government. So you're spending all this money locking people up. Part of it is because the activism around criminal justice reform from people who are formerly incarcerated, but also other people who just see this 
this as a basic human rights issue and an embarrassment of our country. Right. Uh, so it's a confluence of, of all of that. And so you have to be sensitive to when moments like that happen and then take advantage of them. Another big thing that you have on your plate is is chairing the CBC. Yes. Uh, and I think which that— Which is the Congressional Black the, Caucus. The Congressional Black Caucus, right. which is in a really unique position right now with, with Trump as president. Mm-hmm. Um, how is the CBC working to keep this administration in check? Well, first of all, uh, folks should know that there are 55 african American. actually there's 57 African-Americans in Congress. 55 are in the Black Caucus. Two of them are Republicans. They choose not to be, which is okay. Hmm. Uh, and three members of the Black Caucus are in the top leadership in the House of Representatives. Five chair full committees, which is a huge deal. And, and 22 of us chair subcommittees. So out of 235 Democrats, 55 being African-American. Mm-hmm. And um, there isn't one of us that I believe that has a district that's all African-American. So we all represent very diverse, uh, diverse districts. Uh, but, you know, because he is such an open racist, because he has been an absolute instigator uh, of of white supremacist groups mm-hmm. uh, in a whole new day, then the Black Caucus obviously has to stay on the forefront in every way because he's come in and, you know, we pay attention to some of his corruption, but he has dismantled stuff mm-hmm. in every federal agency. All of the civil rights protections that were put in place over decades, he has tried to systematically uh, undo. Mm-hmm. And so it's put us, you know, on the defensive. We did at one point have to go meet with him. If you remember that famous press conference when he right. said to April Ryan, yeah. uh, who was the CBC and did she know them? Because, of course, all black people know each other. <laughs> um, and so I was in the, the leadership of the Black Caucus at the time. I wasn't chairing. And none of us wanted to go meet with him. At that point, it was 49 of us. Okay. But, um, you know, the leadership went. And, uh, and that was quite an experience. The chair at the time put this 120-page document together that was called This Is What We Have to Lose. Because you remember he said black people have nothing to lose. Why don't we support him? So we right. put this document mm-hmm. together and handed it to him. And uh, it was pretty a uh, pretty amazing uh, meeting because— Did he read it? I'm not sure he reads. <laughs> I don't think so either. I'm really not. Yeah. But we thought we would tell him a little bit about black people because he clearly didn't know. Nine of our new me- – uh, five of our new members actually don't represent um, – well, the black population in their districts is between 1% and 5%. Mm. So mm. black people are being elected in areas where, you know, you wouldn't think they would be, which I think is a very good step forward. Speaking of people being elected, the House just elected so many younger representatives. I think the average age just went down by 10 years in this last midterm election. What's your working relationship like with them? Have you had advice for the younger members of Congress? Um, Sure. My working relationship is fine. And yes, I have tried to be there for them. But that's a delicate thing, too, because, you know, you don't want to make someone feel like, you know, you're young, sit down, let me fill your head up with all that I know. Mm. You don't want to do that. You know, they got elected in their own right. Mm. And uh, and I actually didn't approach, with the exception of Ilhan Omar. Ilhan Omar is the one that I really uh, have focused on, which I'll explain in a minute. Uh, but I didn't for several months because I knew they were being pounced on. But um, But I've absolutely embraced them and feel, like I said, I mean, 
one of my life's missions is focusing on the next generation of mm-hmm. leaders. That's what happened with me. And, um, and I feel really privileged now that I'm in the position as the elder that I get to focus, you know, on, on young folks coming up. So uh, it's very important to me uh, that they be successful. I do think, though, people have to decide if they really want to be in Congress. Hmm. And um, and so, well, because you can run, especially an insurgent, and not necessarily know what you're getting into. Yeah. <laughs> and then you get into Congress, and it is a culture, and uh, it is an environment that is very uh, that is not individualistic. So, you can have a big social media presence, but that does not translate at all into support inside of Congress. And if you want to get legislation done. You have to move into more of a team kind of thing. Whip, whip votes and caucus and all that. Right. And so Ilhan, um, my my focus on Ilhan and also Joe Nagus, who's not talked about very often, is the first two Africans elected to Congress. Mm-hmm. So it's very exciting. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, Joe Nagus's parents were refugees from Eritrea. Mm-hmm. And Ilhan, of course, was a refugee from Somalia. So I told both of them when they got elected that I would take them to Africa as soon as they came in. And so I did do that. And then, of course, I was heavily recruiting Ilhan to be on my subcommittee uh, that I now, after eight years, have an opportunity to chair the subcommittee on Africa. Because, mm-hmm. again, I'm thinking in the future. I mean, I'm not going to always be there. Wouldn't it be how cool would it be for the Africa subcommittee to be chaired by an African? <laughs> <laughs> that just makes too much sense, though. That's I don't think that. <laughs> um, reporting has uh, recently come out that Trump asked the Ukrainian leader to help dig up dirt on Joe Biden's son and right. withheld $250 million in military aid. That that can't be legal. Oh, no, it's not legal at all. But <laughs> but then, I mean, he, you know, his criminal behavior, I, he, he, he views this thing, well, if I do it in public, it's not a crime, so I'm going to go rob a bank, and as long as I tell everybody, I guess it's okay. But, um, you know, this happened right as we were adjourning, so... When we go back next week, it'll probably be a much bigger uh, issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think it's just another example of his of his criminal behavior. And the question is now, you know, what do we do? Um, he has shown lawlessness and a disregard for the rule of law in every single way. I mean, I serve on judiciary. This week we had Lewandowski, who didn't even work for the administration. So how can you claim executive privilege and you don't even work for the administration? Right. I mean, uh, and and this one really, this question's really in regards to Lewandowski, specifically coming from my wife. <laughs> can we actually, I know there's a little cell in, in Congress. Can we hold someone in contempt and get the sergeant at arms to put them there, or is it would just get overcrowded too fast? I heard about that, Jill. I'm going to have to go look for it. <laughs> There's a few people that could belong there. Um, you know, we went, and I'm, by the way, one of my challenges is I'm on judiciary, but I'm one of the few non-lawyers. Hmm. So uh, when we met on um, Friday, the lawyers were giving a presentation to us about contempt. And no, we did not have the authority to just charge contempt right on the spot. Interesting. I don't know that I can explain it any more than that, well, except for that pretty, we did not, pretty have, cut and dry. <laughs> did not have the uh, authority to do that. I will tell you that we are still contemplating on what we do. The but follow-up. Right, the follow-up and whether or not contempt enters a little bit later. 
but we didn't have the authority to just go right down there and, and do that. And you know what? It's a touchy thing because, you know, do you bring a Lewandowski um, when you know he's just going to act out? I mean, I hear he raised over a million dollars. He was, you know, his tweet in the morning was about, hey, thanks. I get to go down and hashtag Senate 2020. Okay. You know, mm. and so that's that's part of the um, dilemma as well. But we needed him to be there because we needed to show that the Trump administration is going to uh, is not going to cooperate even when it's outside of the bounds of their authority. Right. Which was somebody who never worked for him. And, you know, and we know what Lewandowski did. And maybe I should just say it here. Say it here. The president wanted Lewandowski not a member of the administration, to go talk to Sessions and to tell Sessions essentially to shut down the Mueller investigation. That what, Lewin, what, the, what the Mueller investigation should really look at was future presidents, not the current president. <laughs> so, and basically, if he didn't do that, then maybe Sessions should be fired. I mean, so that right there was part of the Mueller reports, one of the examples of as Mueller called it, potential obstruction of justice. It was very frustrating that Mueller did not just call it what it is, mm-hmm. <laughs> obstruction yeah. of justice. Making it potential obstruction of justice was very frustrating to us. Well, you used the word frustrating. I mean, people are frustrated and scared and um, and fatigued yes. by all this, too, right. which is the really important point. And, um our focus is getting people into action because right. whatever mm-hmm. happens with Congress and impeachment or not impeachment or anything, we need to show up and we need to vote. And we need to get people in action. But, yes. but what do you what do you say to people who um, want impeachment and are wondering why Congress isn't acting here? How how can they be an active participant in that? Sure. And you know what? Um, it is so important because it's one of those issues, again, that could demoralize mm-hmm. and how, as an activist, it's really important that we constantly engage people. Because, unfortunately, if you watch the TV, all you hear about is Trump. I mean, it's exhausting. You wouldn't know that we did anything else. You wouldn't know <laughs> we passed gun legislation, prescription drug legislation. All of the stuff we're doing, you would have no idea about. Mm. And so it's really important as we carry on with, with Sea Change and and other other activists are out there that they really do talk about what the Democrats have gotten done, because why should I bother voting? Why did I care about getting the Democrats in charge? They haven't done anything. Mm. It's very easy to think that when we've actually done tons. And uh, and so the impeachment issue is a tough one because we all know that we could impeach him and he's not going to be evicted. And right. so we want to impeach him because he, we want him to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, what We would be very frustrating to impeach him and have him be in the Oval Office the next day and then use that as his campaign. Right. You know, I got exonerated. I mean, they even went so far as to impeach me. I got exonerated. McConnell exonerated me. You know what I mean? Um, the other thing, though, that people have to realize, and, and I explain this in town hall meetings, We are frustrated because we've wanted him gone since January of 2017, and we saw him investigated for two years and nothing happened. But he wasn't investigated by Congress. Mm -hmm. We have been in power for nine months now. And the first month we were in a shutdown, the second month the Republicans really wouldn't make assignments. So we didn't really get going until March. So from March to September, 
that's a very short period of time. So uh, it's easy to look at it, you know, kind of just from your uh, perspective and very, very frustrating. That's why I think it's really important to talk about the things that the Democrats have been trying to get done. Mm -hmm. And also, we got to get the Senate and we got to get the the White House. Um, And so to me, all effort needs to be on 2020, making sure that we're out there talking to voters so that they don't get demoralized and say, well, these people, doesn't matter what he does. Now, it's going to be interesting. It's such so egregious that this whistleblower happened. Mm -hmm. Let's see if it changes public opinion, Mm. because he is his his criminal acts are so massive that will it change public opinion or I mean, what did he say? He could go on Times Square and shoot Shoot somebody. somebody. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And so that's really important about impeachment as well. The public sentiment around impeachment needs to be there. I I know we've talked to a lot of your colleagues from purple areas who are doing town halls and say it never even comes up. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I know that you have to get to a town Town hall. hall. (laughs) Um, So the last question is, uh, what gives you hope for our future? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, (laughs) you know, ironically... This guy, I believe, has been a catalyst for activism like I haven't seen in a really long time. How ironic is that? (laughs) I mean, the worst thing that could have possibly happened after the last election. But again, when something like that happens, you have to see what you can pull from it. And I think that he has inspired activists all down the line. Now, it's our job to make sure that that gets sustained. So that's what gives me hope. 2018 gives me hope. 2017, with all of the, you know, um, involvement, yesterday's environmental march, the young people that are activating on on, on guns, mm-hmm. but it's our responsibility to make sure that that goes somewhere. And, and our, I'm saying that as an elected official, but it's all of our responsibilities. You know, we you can't view change as, well, I'm going to do this for a few years, and then I'm going to go back and, you know... No, it should be. It's, it's a lot of countries around the world where they're much more political than we are. They know what's going on in our country and in their country. Mm-hmm. And politics is just a part of their life. You don't have to do it full time, but you do have a responsibility to know who your congressperson is, what your congressperson does, and let them know, you know, what you like and don't like and, and propose ideas. So that's my hope. That's my hope. Well, thank you so much for a great conversation and all the good advice. Thanks. Thanks for having me on and thanks for doing this. Thank you. If you want to support Representative Bass's Sea Change Leadership Pack, go to seachangepack.org. And that's S-E-A-C, seachangepack.org. Like the sea, not like I see you, but like the sea. Mm-hmm. And you can also check out cocosouthla.org to see the amazing work her organization is still doing in Los Angeles. So you went to the climate strike last Friday, even though it was for youth. Yeah, but there was lots of grown people there. There's tons of them, actually, uh, supporting the youth, which is what we need to do. Absolutely. And and I took my daughter, uh, a whole bunch of kids from her school and friends of hers from other schools were there. It was incredible, really, to see all of these young people. They're so passionate. They're so motivated. They're really well-informed on these issues. It brought me a lot of hope, but we have to follow these kids' lead and get out there and support them ourselves. Right. They're moving the needle on environment. They're moving the needle on gun legislation, certainly, but they can't get to the finish line unless we help them do it. Right. 
you talked to a lot of the marchers. Was there anything that stood out that they were talking about that we can take action on if we're not a young person? Yeah, for sure. Well, one thing that really stood out for me is a lot of the kids I talked to said that they weren't really aware of this issue or focused on it, Mm. but were motivated by some of their friends who had gotten involved Mm. and that they were inspired by this march or they were inspired by Greta Thunberg to get involved. And it really, for me, showcased the power of our individual voices to help move other people into action and build these movements. So that's what we need to keep doing. We need to demand more from our legislators and we need to listen to these young people. So let's listen to them right now. I'm here live walking with my daughter Lucy at the Youth Climate March in downtown Los Angeles. There are thousands and thousands of people here. This is awesome, right? Yeah. <laughs> Why are you here marching right now? I'm here marching because I think our planet's going to die and change needs to happen. <laughs> yeah. Is this an issue that you're involved with outside of this march? Um, in school, a lot of my friends are a part of programs that help to solve this issue. And so they inspired me to get involved and do something about it because I wasn't doing that prior to them being involved. So I think it's really important that you inspire youth to do this and, you know, do these things. And what's your name? I'm Max. I'm 12. I'm here today to uh, strike my number one because it's an opportunity to miss school and number two because it's a really important issue that we must address it is going to affect us not only us but everyone in the world it's not just about america it's about everyone awesome thank you guys for being here for doing this you guys are amazing green new deal green new deal green new deal so why are you here why is it so important Um, For me, this is just such an integral part of a young person's life is to care about the environment, especially when those before us have it. And so I feel like it's it's not so much something I want to do, but something I have to do. And why are you here today? Because I feel like if I don't help to stop this, then to help stop global warming, then nothing I do in life is really going to matter. It's a really, really good point. (laughs) This is the existential threat that we all face. And uh, on behalf of older people, I apologize to you both. What's your name? Bobby. How old are you? Five. And why are you here marching right now? To save the environment. That's right. Thank you for being here and doing this. You're welcome. <laughs> Sounds of the American protest. <laughs> nice. Thank you for the fife playing. That was incredible. <laughs> you're, what, you're welcome. What brought you out here today? Uh, mostly fear. Fear of death. That's a legitimate reason to be taken to the streets. I think that's why we're all here. Also, but like fear and hope. I saw that in Melbourne there's like 100,000 people outside on the streets. That's incredible. That's inspiring. I am definitely a mother against climate change. If one day my kids and hopefully grandkids ask me what I did, I'd like to be able to say I did something and try to get as engaged as possible. My name is Sayla. And what does your sign say? 
Uh, my sign says black and brown bodies are systemically vulnerable to the violence of climate change and environmental racism now. We're going to have so many climate refugees. You know, we have uh, so many problems. And, of course, people of color, people in marginalized communities are the ones that are affected the most. Right. And, um, I mean, you're seeing that right now with the Bahamas. It was completely decimated, and that's a mainly black island. There's many issues in the Southeast Asian region, Latin America. The migration crisis is happening now. Are a lot of farmers who rely on the, the, their land to produce food. And because of colonialism and imperialism and taking over resources that aren't theirs, they're put in the, the disposition of not having choice, so they have to leave. So I'm here for those people who don't have the luxury of marching, but who are literally surviving out here and not being able to. I'm guessing this isn't your first march? No, it's not. <laughs> it is not. My name is Amy. I am 13. And what does your sign say? Uh, it says respect science because science. Because science. Yes, because science. And what does the other side say? It says God bless Greta Thunberg. So what made you come out here and participate in this? Um, I don't really know. I'm really motivated by all the other people that came out here. And because um, I'm scared. I'm scared about the climate. It's changing and I don't understand why people aren't doing anything about it. I'm Sybil Azer with Climate Reality LA. So we are working to get Los Angeles Unified School District, the largest energy consumer in the city of Los Angeles, to get them to pass a renewable energy resolution. And the vote is coming up in the next month and a half, so we need all hands on deck. Sign the petition at Sierra Club, Climate Parents. Thank you, Sybil, for your incredible work. You're amazing. Why aren't you in school right now? Because I'd rather be here fighting for our future generation and climate change. Yeah, what about you? Why aren't you in school? Same reason. Um, I feel like our, our president is not doing anything, so us students have to step up because if he's not going to do nothing, then who will? Why aren't you in school right now? Because this is more important and because they won't listen to people who are educated anyways, so maybe they'll listen to us. To see all these young people, to see the hundreds of thousands, millions of people around the world, something has shifted. It's the best day of my life. And what was the first march or rally you were at? Um, the Women's March about three years ago. Okay, and what brought you out here today? I want to help make a change, because this isn't right. And how old are you? Ten. <laughs> my name is Allie Bell. And you're one of the organizers for this event? Um, I was previously an organizer for this event, and I've worked with the people who are organizing this event. I'm so proud of what they're doing. I wasn't expecting this big of a turnout, and I'm really excited that it, was, it happened. What got you involved in this? So I've always cared about the environment. I want to spend my career working on climate change and re renewable energy. And looking at what's happening in our political system right now, just the science isn't enough, and just the research isn't enough. There isn't enough political will to implement it. And so I think that as teenagers right now, we have to be active in our political climate. And this is a really awesome way to get out there and to make ourselves known. And the turnout has been incredible, and I'm so excited to be a part of it. The people united will never be divided. The people united will never be divided. The people united. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you for stepping up and taking action. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved, and our work has to start now. 
We want to hear from you. What would you like to hear on the show? What topics do you want to discuss? We want your story. Email us at podcast at swingleft.org. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed, mm-hmm. rated, and reviewed. If you haven't yet, please do subscribe on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Share our pods with all of your friends. Help us build this movement. Use the hashtag HowWeWin2020. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, as always, sign up to volunteer. That's right. And thank you so much for being here. We're excited to bring you more stories from the field next Wednesday. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Rise up! The power come down. When the people rise up, then the power come down. They try to stop us, but we keep coming back. They try to stop us, but we keep coming back. We're gonna rise up, rise up till it's one. We're gonna rise up, rise up till it's one. When the people rise up, the powers come down. When the people rise up, then the powers come down. They try to stop us, but we keep coming back. They try to stop us, but we keep coming back. We're gonna rise up, rise up till it's one. We're gonna rise up, rise up till it's one. When the people rise up, then the powers come down. W.